If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and open again to the book of Galatians? Continuing, this is sermon number three now in our trek through the book of Galatians. And our theme remains the same for this morning as we continue to see the way that Paul not only preaches the gospel, but that he contends for it, the way that he contends for the purity of the gospel, fighting against any who would distort the truth of the gospel, any who would add to it or take away from it. And so this morning, we're reading from Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24, the last half of the first chapter. Galatians 1, 11 through 24, and I'll ask, if you're able this morning, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, our desire now is to hear from you in this text. And so we ask that you will give your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word, and that it might land in our hearts with power, with conviction, and with joy. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There was a certain phase in my life, I I think of the time between junior high and high school, when uh, it seemed as though I was often hearing people come and share their testimonies, and it was often either in our, our youth group at church or at youth camps that I attended, And there were always certain themes that were common to all the testimonies that were shared. It always was very dramatic. The person sharing their testimony was typically somebody who had a very dark and rebellious past, usually sometime in their teenage years, perhaps, when they were heavily involved in drugs and alcohol and fornication, seemingly the unholy trinity of of religious backgrounds for those who would share their testimonies. And, and so that had some effects on me. Namely, it made me think that my testimony was just so boring and plain. And, and it made me think that if someone was going to be used to, to advance the kingdom through sharing their testimony and through ministering in some way, that, that they had to have one of these very dramatic testimonies where they were so far in darkness and yet they could share this story of how the Lord rescued them and they found Christ or Christ found them and he brought them out of this life that they were living and brought them to himself. Well, as I got older, I learned two things 
about testimonies. The first thing I learned was that uh, a boring testimony in many ways is just as dramatic or even more dramatic than an exciting one. If you have grown up all your life in church, hearing the gospel preached, and now as an adult are still a believer in Christ, that is just as much a miracle as someone who grew up far from Christ and becomes a believer late in life. That is just as amazing. It is just as much a testament to the grace of God in Christ that you who grew up among all of this still delights to come and to worship and to be in Christ. The second thing I learned about testimonies was this, that the the purpose of sharing our story and the purpose of sharing it is not to say something memorable about ourselves, but rather to put the focus and the spotlight on Christ and to magnify the work of Christ such that he is exalted and he is lifted up and we, as John the Baptist has said, that we become less and that Christ would become greater. If, if someone walks away from a testimony only remembering the sordid details of the person's life and not glorifying Christ, then they haven't done their job at all. As we look at the last half of chapter 1, what Paul is doing is beginning to share his testimony with the churches in Galatia. He gets a bit autobiographical on us here for a few verses, sharing something of who he had been prior to his conversion and the way that Christ then got a hold of him. He shares three things, well, at least we'll see three points in this text. First, the source of the gospel. Second, the power of the gospel. And third, the effect of the gospel. The source, the power, the effect of the gospel. And see as he shares these things that he is continuing now to defend his gospel that he preaches against those who would distort it. There are false teachers who have come into the church who are seeking to distort the gospel that Paul preaches. Paul preaches justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. And there are those who have come in and said, that's nice, in addition to that, you also must obey the law of Moses. You also must add your own good works. They are distorting Paul's gospel. And what we'll see as we go is that all three of these things are lost when the gospel is distorted. The source of the gospel is a divine revelation is lost. It's no longer from God. The power of the gospel for transformation is lost. It no longer has the power to transform. And the effect of the gospel leading to worship is lost. It no longer leads us to glory only in God. The source, the power, and the effect of the gospel. We need to ponder for a moment the implications of verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. These verses have vital importance for the way that we think about the gospel message that we have received. They have vital implications for the way we think about the gospel message that we have received, and therefore implications for how we think about God, how we think about Christ, how we think about the work of the Spirit in our lives, how we think about ourselves, how we think about everybody else. In other words, the way we think about the gospel affects all of life. And these verses tell us something so important, that the gospel that Paul preaches is not man's gospel. He did not receive it from man. Notice how similar this is to what Paul has said in verse 1. In verse 1, above, in stating his own qualifications as an apostle, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And now he gets to verse 11, talking about the message that he preaches. I would have you know that it's not, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul above has stated his apostolic qualifications, now his apostolic message, and the same truth applies to both of them. They didn't come from men, they didn't come through man, both of them were received directly by revelation of God through Christ. His mission and his message, both directly from Christ. This tells us something about the gospel. It means the gospel is absolutely unique among messages, philosophies, truths, ideas, uh, ideologies, wisdom of men. The gospel stands separate from all of them. It stands above them as absolutely unique because it does not come from man nor through any man, but directly from Jesus Christ. So we can't simply set out a, a marketplace of ideas, sort of a banquet table of which we can pick and choose. Here are some earthly philosophies, man's ideologies, human wisdom. Here's the gospel. It's not in the same category as any of those. It is rather divinely revealed. And therefore, it's, it's different. It's different in its source because the, the human uh, ideas and philosophies come from men. The gospel comes from God. They're different in their scope. Human philosophies address human problems. The gospel addresses a cosmic, divine problem. They're different in their purpose. Human philosophy seeks to provide peace, whether social, or mental, or spiritual, or political, or any other type of peace. It seeks to provide some manner of peace. The gospel seeks the glory of God through the exaltation of Christ and the restoration of all things, things in heaven and on earth. One pastor, Phil Riken, puts it this way. He says, Not surprisingly, religions that human beings invent always end up glorifying human beings. Not surprisingly, religions that human beings invent always end up glorifying human beings. There's always some law to keep, some teaching to follow, some ritual to perform, some performance to endure, some penance to endure, some state of consciousness to attain, something that will bring us salvation. One way or another, we climb up to heaven and we reach to God by our attainments. Christianity is different. It does not teach that we climb up to heaven, but that God has come down to earth. What Paul is saying to the Galatians here is that the gospel, as Paul preaches it to them, that you are justified only by faith alone in Christ alone, that that message comes from Jesus himself. That it is a divine gift, this message, a divine gift of divine grace through Paul to the churches. And, and what he says here is that if you tamper with it in any way, you lose it altogether. If you tamper with it in the smallest way, you ruin it altogether. You, you cannot improve upon it by human additions. Rather, any small change means it's completely lost altogether. Imagine that, that somehow you were to have the good fortune of, of coming upon a baseball signed by Babe Ruth. If you found a baseball with Babe Ruth's signature on it, uh, that would be quite valuable. We, we might say that would be uh, worth somewhere north of $50,000. In fact, last November, one sold for $160,000. Uh, that would be a very valuable find, very precious. But, but say you find this baseball and you notice that Babe Ruth's signature 
it's starting to fade a little bit. I mean, he died a long time ago. It's obviously old. The signature is fading. It's wearing down a little bit. It's, it, there's parts of it that are hard to read. You can't appreciate it fully. And so you think to yourself, ah, I know what I will do. I will fix it. I will improve it. And so you grab your Sharpie. And you say, I'll just, I'll just real quickly trace over the signature here so that people can read Babe Ruth's name on that. I mean, you want people to appreciate it. You want this to be something that's valuable to people that they can enjoy. And so you just trace over Babe Ruth and you write on it. What have you done to the value of that baseball? You have ruined it. It, it no longer has any value. That baseball is now, it's actually worth less than a blank baseball. A blank baseball you could possibly sell as new. That one would be worth nothing because you had tampered with it. So it is with the gospel. Paul says that, that you have taken this thing and by attempting to improve it, you've completely ruined it. As he says above in verse, the end of verse 6, he says, you're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, not that there is anything else. And in the case of this baseball, we'd, we'd simply say, obviously, you, whoever did this to this baseball was completely ignorant of all things regarding baseball memorabilia, and so uh, they didn't know how to treat it, and so they ruined it. And Paul is saying the same things about the Galatians. They distort the gospel because they're ignorant of it. They don't understand the way that it works. They don't understand that as a gift from God, purely by his grace, that it's designed to give all the glory to Christ, that it's designed to, to humble us, it's, it's designed to give, reveal the grace and the mercy of God, it's designed to highlight the sinfulness of sin, it's designed to exalt the work of Jesus on the cross while simultaneously keeping us both humble and joyful in what he's done for us. That's the way it works because it's not by our works, it's by his grace. And so if we distort that and add just a little bit of our works, he says, you don't understand, you're, you're ruining the whole thing. It's lost all of its value. What was once a divine gift is now just another option among human ideologies. And so he begins by pointing us to the divine source of the gospel, that it comes from God. Second, he demonstrates for us the power of the gospel, the source of the gospel, now the power of the gospel, verses 13 through 22. Paul briefly, in these verses, recounts his own story of how his life was radically changed by the gospel. I think he does it for two reasons here, not just because he likes to talk about himself, uh, in fact, often in reading the scriptures, I wish Paul would tell us a little bit more about himself, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He shares his testimony for two reasons. First, again, it's, it's to display this reality that the gospel is a divine message that came to him not by any man, but it came directly to him from Christ. So he, he's continuing to defend his apostolic authority and his apostolic message. But also, I believe he shares this to encourage us to encourage you and to increase your confidence in the supernatural power of the gospel. To encourage us and to increase our confidence in the power of the gospel. I think Paul knows that, that many of us would struggle to believe the promises of God. Many of us would have a, a difficult time having confidence in the power of the gospel. We can easily, if you're like me, despair of, of seeking the salvation of those who are around us of loved ones or family members, friends, neighbors, if they're not saved, it's easy for us to at times fall into despair that they will ever be saved. And Paul's purpose here is to speak some gospel truth into our lives, to remind us what the gospel is capable of, and therefore to buttress us up against despair. 
so many places in the Bible, God gives these promises that almost would seem, dare we say it, unbelievable. We hear promises like 1 Samuel 14, 6, nothing is able to keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. This great, this great promise of God's power to save anyone that he desires to, whether it be many people at one time or just a few here and there. We hear Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. And yet there have been times that I share these verses with people and they think of their own family members who perhaps they've been praying for for years and years and years and, and they hear it and they say, yes, but... And it's, it's difficult for them to fight off the despair. And so, knowing our slowness to believe, Paul shares with us this story of his own conversion from, from rock-hard sinner, destroyer of the church, to a humble preacher of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 13. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I tried, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So great was the change and so dramatic is the change. He, Paul could have spoke at youth groups and youth camps if he wanted. He had one of these dramatic testimonies and yet he, he looks at it and he says, this is my former life. Paul is not some mystic, weirdly spiritual person here who believes in reincarnation. He's, he's saying, my former life before Christ, before my conversion, was, was so completely different, so 180 degrees, polar opposite of what it is now, that the only way to talk about it is to say, that was my former life. That's not my life anymore. That life no longer has any power to define who I am today. That's not me. That's, that's my former life. I think it keeps him humble, but we have no sense in any of Paul's writings that there's any sense of shame over what he's done because he knows who he is in Christ. He has a former life. Think of your family members who don't know Christ. Oftentimes, we're so tempted to think only in terms of the deceitfulness of sin or the hardness of heart that we perceive that we forget the ability of the gospel to give us a former life, to, to make such a radical break such a clean break that we can look at that and the only way to describe it would be to say, that was my former life. Or to look at our family members and say, well, that was their former life. That's not who they are anymore. The gospel has this power to change us so radically, so completely, so entirely in every aspect of our being that we simply say, that was, that was a former life. That's not who we are anymore. It changes us so dramatically. And so... Here's what he says. This was my former life. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. You know, some of you think you have dramatic stories of conversion and rescue. I doubt any of you were intentionally and systematically trying to destroy the bride of Christ through murdering all of the members. But that's where Paul was. Acts 7 says, Paul was supervising and approving those who murdered Stephen by stoning. Acts 8.3 Saul was ravaging the church, entering home after home. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That was Paul's life. And he reminds them of it here briefly, not to boast in who he was or what he had done, but as he says at the end of Galatians, that he might boast only in the cross of Christ. That in bringing this up, it, it might not exalt him, but this might lift up the work of Christ and to say, 
If God can change me through the cross of Christ, he can change anyone. The cross of Christ is this powerful that, that this is who I was. I mean, you would have thought of me and you would have completely despaired of any evangelistic hopes because that's what I was doing. I, I was going so hard in this direction and yet God in Christ has redeemed me. Turn over to Titus 3 if you have your Bibles open. Titus chapter 3, verses 5, uh, well, starting in verse 3. Here, this is another place in his letters where Paul recounts something of his past. Titus 3, verse 3. Titus 3, 3. We ourselves, Paul is including himself in this. We ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us. According to his own mercy, he says, this is who I was. I was foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Hating others, hating one another, hated by others. And yet, he says, when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, he saved me. That was what it took, was simply a revelation of the goodness and mercy of God in Christ. We see in Galatians here, verse 15, he says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Listen to those words. What, what Paul says here is a little bit astounding. He says, God had set Paul apart since before Paul was born, even while he was yet in his mother's womb. Like the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says, I had called you before you were born. I had a plan for your life. I knew every step of the way before it came to pass. God had set him apart, and at the proper time called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. I can only imagine how some of the churches would have heard that description. Some of the churches who had known the persecution of the Apostle Paul read that and say, why in the world did God not please to reveal his son a little bit earlier to protect some of the churches? People like Stephen died while they were waiting for God's timing to reveal Christ to Paul. Why, why not sooner? And we don't know why except to say that God's timing is always perfect in all that he does. He tells us here God had a plan for his life before one of his days ever came to be. Sometimes the trials and the tribulations are, are part of God's larger plan to reveal the glory of Christ. And in this case, although it's mysterious, we see that God was planning all along the way to allow Paul to go a certain distance away from him in order that Christ might be even more glorified when he does reveal him to Paul and when he does convert him and when he does take him from being a murderer of the church to now a preacher of the faith. For whatever reason God had in doing that, it's to lift up the work of Christ and to make him that much more glorious. And he says this, when God was pleased to reveal Christ, was pleased to reveal Christ, I... I would venture to say that nothing pleases God more than to be able to reveal Christ to someone. He says what he does is he simply reveals Christ to Paul in order that Paul might preach him among the Gentiles. 
as we think back at Acts 9, Paul on the road to Damascus, we know that story well that Paul is riding and, and Christ appears to him on the road and knocks him off his horse and he's blinded. And, and we might think, you know, God kind of threw it down on him there. God didn't just intimidated him. He forced him to go a different way. But that's not how Paul says it. He revealed Christ in his pleasure to me. And we read in Titus that he says, when the grace and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He looks on that not as a, a revelation of God's judgment or intimidation, but as the loving, merciful kindness of God to him, revealing Christ that he might be saved. And that is what has changed Paul's life. That is what has changed Paul's life. It's, it's the gospel of the grace of God being revealed to him in the cross of Christ that has the power to change him, that has the power to change our foolish arrogance into a humble faith, to kill our self-centeredness and our egoism and to make us joyfully and gladly live self-sacrificial lives, to die to ourselves in order that we might live for Christ, has the power to change fearful greed into extravagant generosity for the sake of Christ, has the power to cause us to stop seeking ourselves and to live for others. This is the power of the gospel, to take us and to give us a former life, to help us look on those past days, however they were spent, dramatically or undramatically, and to say, this was my former life. I lived for myself. That's not me anymore because Christ on the cross has redeemed me. Only the gospel has this power. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Or as Paul expresses it here in Galatians 2.20, says, I've been crucified with Christ. That former life, this is the reason it's former, because I've been crucified. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so church, let's resolve to do two things. As we think about the power of the gospel in this text, let's make two resolutions. First, let's believe it. Let's believe it. Let's believe the power of the gospel to change lives, to, to dramatically alter our lives. I think what happens to us so often is we just begin to mentally write people off. Family members, friends, people we've known for a long time, we know them, and we just mentally write them off. You know, if they were going to become a Christian, they would have done it long ago. I've talked to them about Jesus a hundred times. I know exactly what they're going to say. It's not going to happen. I know how hardened they are in their sin. They've known me for 10 years. If they were interested, they would have asked by now. I've invited them to church. I know what they're going to say. And so we just mentally, we write people off. Paul shares this in order to bolster our confidence and to get us to believe the power of the gospel to change lives and to save souls no matter how seemingly hardened they are, no matter how seemingly far from Christ they may be, no matter how deep in the kingdom of darkness they seem to be. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. I heard one preacher say regarding this term, we say, oh, some people are hard cases. He said, there are no hard cases. Either that or we're all hard cases. He says, the gospel has the power to take a pile of dry bones and to make them a living army. There are no harder cases than that. If the gospel by the Spirit can do that, then, then nobody is a hard case. Let us believe the power of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. Second, church, let's believe the power of the gospel for our own transformation. For our own transformation. 
although we can say this is our former life, certain patterns of that former life continue to hang on, don't they? The gospel brings the power for ongoing change. We're still being changed into the image of our Savior. We need the power of the gospel to continue every day to crucify the old man, to die to selfishness and to live to generosity, to die to pride and to live to humility, to die to fear and live for love. That, that itself, even as we grow now, will be accomplished by the power of the gospel in our lives. Let's believe the gospel for others. Let's believe the gospel for ourselves. Power to change lives the source of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. Third, the effect of the gospel. Look at verses 23 and 24. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. If the source of the gospel is the message that comes from God, power of the gospel is the power to transform our lives and save sinners. The effect of the gospel is this, that it creates worshipers. It creates worshipers. It, it turns us into people whose primary desire and goal and objective is to worship God. This is our prayer for us every Sunday. This is our prayer as we gather, as we come here, that, that this is what will happen that the Holy Spirit of God will be among us in such a way, working in our hearts, that he will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the cross of Christ lifted up before us in all that we do through the proclamation of the word of God, through the administration of the sacraments, in each step along the way as we're responding to the word of God, lifting our prayers to God, that in all of it, Christ, our King, will be exalted, and the eyes of our hearts will be opened to behold the King all his beauty and that the effect of that on our hearts will be that we will worship as we're gathered here we'll worship Christ for what he's done for us that we'll hear stories of gospel transformation we'll hear gospel proclamation and our hearts will worship our savior that's what we that's what we desire that's our prayer for for our worship meetings here on Sunday as Lee said our there's lots of reasons it might seem like we're here to gather, but we're here to praise. We're here to worship. We're not simply here to, to check this off our checklist. Check, we did it again. We came to church this week. We're not just trying to add a little bit more spiritual instruction to our families' lives. We're here to gather before his throne and to worship God, to have our hearts be moved and, and find greater joy in Christ today than we did last week, to find greater satisfaction in Christ today than we have in the past, to have a greater sense of, of pure delight in the beauty of our Savior, to have our eyes be open to that more and more. And how do we do that? How, what's our goal then? How do we get to that place where we are moved to worship? I believe it's this way. It's through the proclamation of the gospel. Primarily, the way it happened in this text is that they heard of the power of the gospel in changing Paul's life and they worshiped God. They saw what Christ was able to do and they worshiped. The means that we will use is to proclaim the gospel in word here in the sermon, in, in deed in the sacraments. In all that we do, we proclaim the gospel in order to lead to worship. There's, there's other ways. Yes, we can look at creation around us and we can see the creativity and the power and the wisdom of God. We can read the law in the Old Testament, we can see the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. 
But all of these things are designed to lead us to the one place where all of his attributes and all of his glory are shown most clearly, and that is at the cross of Christ. All of God's attributes are seen most clearly at the cross of Christ. All of God's works are leading to their fulfillment in the cross of Christ. So, so we go to the gospel, and that is what empowers our worship. The more we hear it, the more we see it, the more we taste it, the more we believe the gospel, the more our hearts are directed towards Christ at the cross. And so, church, let's not be the unbelieving Galatians who were dissatisfied, who didn't think the gospel was good enough and they needed to improve it a little bit. Let's instead be these churches uh, in Judea that hear the story of God's transforming grace and their hearts worship, they praise, they glory in God and they give glory to him for what Christ has done. Let's continue to pray for more opportunities then to hear stories of salvation and transformation and rescue and to glorify God for doing this. Let's continue to pray that he will glorify himself in us, among us, around us by bringing more and more people to know the transforming power of the gospel. Let's do this in order that the praise and the glory of God might abound to him in the churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we extol your name, for you are good. You are upright, and therefore you instruct sinners in your way. Father, we thank you for the good news that has been given to us through the apostles recorded in Scripture, passed down diligently through the generations, that we might have the good news of the gospel, untampered with, undefiled, undistorted, that we might read, believe, and worship. Father, lead us to the foot of the cross, we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship this morning, taking our bulletins together for our song.